Okay, phone off, microphone on, headphones, 2024, we are back. Where were we? Geraldine Brooks is that rarest of things, a literary bestseller. Her 2005 novel March, a retelling of Little Women, won a Pulitzer Prize. She's written historical novels about plagues and Puritans, about the writing of the Bible, and in her most recent novel, Horse, about the greatest racehorse in American history. Her readers hang on to her vivid retellings of history and literature, but they also hang on her every sentence. Because on the line, she's gorgeous. This combination of the poetic and the forensic. See, for me, I love reading Geraldine Brooks' novels because she's one of those writers whose turn of phrase is mesmerising. I'll stop reading and share passages with whoever's in the room or take photos of paragraphs and send them to friends like some kind of Instagrammer eating a particularly photogenic meal. Geraldine Brooks writes sentences. So when I asked her to offer a life sentence for Read This, a turn of phrase that had stayed with her or resonated in her life or in her work since she first came across it, it made perfect sense that she might choose a sentence for its elegant beauty. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and welcome back to Read This, a show about the books we love and the sentences that make them. French novelist André McKean won that country's two most prestigious literary prizes with his 1995 book, Dreams of My Russian Summers. It's a novel about memory and loss, one that grapples with the weight and expectations of history and the ways in which it shapes and distorts the personal. I'm not surprised that for Geraldine Brooks, preeminent author of historical fiction, it's a book that resonated at several levels. Here she is with the sentence from that novel that has stayed with her. By now, she knew that this life, despite all its pain, could be lived. That one must travel through it slowly, passing from the sunset to the penetrating odour of the stalks, from the infinite calm of the plain to the singing of a bird lost in the sky. Yes, going from the sky to that deep reflection of it that she felt within her own breast as an alert and living presence. Geraldine Brooks, thank you so much. What a treat to be read to and what a gorgeous choice. Maybe uh, if you could kick us off by telling us a bit about why that passage stands out for you. I was reading Dreams of My Russian Summers for the first time in a pretty difficult year for me. It was 2004 and I was being treated for breast cancer. And you never know how that's going to go. And I'm very happy that it's almost, what, 20 years ago and it's just a bad memory and a couple of fading scars. But at the time, you know, you're right in the thick of contemplating your mortality for me for the first time quite seriously because I'd always been in denial about that even when I was in crazy situations covering wars and whatnot, I always felt invulnerable. But... There was something about um, getting to that point in the book, and he's writing about his grandmother who was trapped in Siberia by the outbreak of World War I, and her husband has gone off to fight, and as far as she knows, he's dead, and, of course, conditions have been terrible. But this idea that 
the sad and the happy, the beautiful and the terrible, they're all going to work side by side in your life. You're never really going to be in one steady state. And you have to accept that and still be open to the beauty as well as accepting the, the grief and the pain. Oh, I love that. Acceptance and openness and steadiness. It's kind of seeking stillness despite being buffeted at all sides. Does that resonate with you? Are you a still person? <laughs> no, not really. Every time I go to a yoga class and we get to the end and you're lying in savasana, uh, all I can do is think about all the things I should be doing if I wasn't lying in savasana. <laughs> For me, the only time I've ever experienced the full be here now is on the back of a horse because if you're not there now, you'll be on the ground very soon after. <laughs> uh, fair enough. But you only came to horse riding at 50. Do I have that right? Yeah, I was in my 50s. Because that that's relatively late to find the thing that gives you permission to be still. Uh, yeah, because for me, reading, it's a bit like the Andre McKean experience. You're associating it always with things in your own life. And I should also say that the reason I love that sentence <laughs> is as a writer, it's just a magnificent sentence. The punctuation is incredibly complicated. You're breathing on the semicolons and the commas. It's a long single sentence and I, I'm just blown away by it technically. So I'm never a hundred percent there in the book because I'm thinking wow, this is really beautifully written, or I'm thinking, yes, he's got that right because it associates with something in my own life. That makes perfect sense, but that seems inherently sad to me that as a writer you might not be able to just read for joy. I mean, are you always aware of the mechanics, reading as a writer? Oh, look, no, sometimes not. And when that happens, the minute I finish the book, I go back and start it again to read it for the craft. Mm. Yeah, no, I do let myself get, you know, carried off by story and emotion and, and the reality that the writer has created. Have you changed as a reader throughout your life? I think we all do, don't we? I mean, the more tread you get worn off your tyres just by living, the more you can see. I mean... All those classic books that they marched us through in high school, they were great. It was a great experience. But when you come back to them, uh, having actually lived, uh, you read them as a completely different book. I couldn't agree more. It's one of the great delights, I think, is to go back to a book that you either read too young or that your reading of it was kind of consumed by some wider cultural context rather than the book itself. And then you come back to it and you discover the magic on the page or the ways in which it confounds your expectations. I adore that feeling. Yeah, you know, I, I, I used to read a lot to my kiddos before they could read for themselves. And it's, you know, there was a really... A, a day that really amused me. I was we'd uh, been reading the Philip Pullman, his Dark Materials trilogy, and talk about a book that I was getting on entirely other levels to what my eight-year-old son was getting in terms of the Milton references and the string theory and all that. And we get to the end, and it's this absolutely heartbreaking bit where the two young protagonists realise that they have to go back to their own universes 
And they talk about how they're going to sit on this bench at Oxford at the same time every year in their separate universes. And I'm in absolute floods of tears. And, and my, my son is like, Mom, could you stop crying and just get on with the story? <laughs> because he hadn't experienced deep romantic love like that, you know? No, of course. But tell me, were you read to when you were a kid? Did your parents read to you? Oh, yes. That was one of the great things of my childhood. We didn't have a lot of material stuff when I was growing up, but books were huge and we would go to the library every weekend and we'd all come back with our stack. You know, my parents were voracious readers and my dad read to me every night I from 6.30 to 7. And wherever we were at at 7 o'clock, that was where we left it. And it was all a big plot, of course, because... Finally, when my reading skills were sufficient and the book was so good, I just, you know, that was when I I finally took off as a reader. But, yeah, no, being read to was a huge part of my childhood. You you might not, but I'm I'm just curious, do you remember any moments when you were aware of your father enjoying a book as reading to you at a level you weren't? I don't. But, you know, the great thing about my dad was when I was coming up, he was working as a proofreader for the Women's Weekly, and often the books that he would choose for me were ones that had been serialised in the weekly, and I remember one of them was Paul Gallico's Scruffy, which is about the apes on Gibraltar during World War II. And it is a book that works on two levels because, you know, the wartime part of the plot didn't intrigue me as much as the, the character of Scruffy, who is this absolutely impossible ape that they have to convince to mate with a female. Otherwise, you know, the legend is that if the apes disappear from Gibraltar, uh, the British Empire will collapse. Anyway, um, my dad was incredibly in love with the English language. He was very uh, astute grammarian and he he had like certain things that drove him crazy. Uh, misuses of words like decimate, he could not bear it. He could not bear the expression centered around. Anyway, so he would stop in the middle of the book and explain grammatical (laughs) uh, niceties. And also he was very patient about if there was a word I didn't understand, I would get a definition that was worthy of the OED. Did you have a similar dynamic with your mum? Like, did she read to you? She was a huge reader. She didn't read to me, um, but she was the one who taught me to be a writer, I think, because she was more into the imagination. And she would make up these incredibly involving games that had a, a strong narrative line through them, had characters and dialogue and all that. And we would play those games together. And I think that that, you know, I wasn't thinking about being a writer, but it was the best training possible. And, you know, I loved hanging out with her because it was so instructive and I learned more. Um, so I became a bit of a school avoider and she was pretty okay with that. So I would just miss a lot of school and hang out with her and we would make up stories. Oh, I love that. And it's like they're the essential building blocks for any writer. Your dad offering the technical side of things and the rigor of language, and then your mum's imagination and story and love of play. What what an amazing combination. And, you know, throw in the third thing, which is um, the Irish heritage, the, the uncles and the great uncles and 
the aunts and my grandmother loved poetry. And so when they would get together, you know, and they'd had a few sherries or whatever, they all had their party piece, these long narrative poems that they would recite. And it was transfixing for a kid. Great for them to get a bit tipsy and launch into Laska or the Charge of the Light Brigade or whatever it was. We'll be right back. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. For the past several decades, Geraldine Brooks has split her time between Sydney and Martha's Vineyard, where she lived for many years with her late husband, writer and historian Tony Horowitz. The two met while they were foreign correspondents, Tony for The New Yorker and Geraldine for The Wall Street Journal. Eventually, both made the move from journalism to books, history for Tony, and ultimately, the novel for Geraldine. I was curious about how that transition was for her. It wasn't so smooth, but it was a little bit more gradual. So the first hurdle to get over is the transition from writing reasonably short to sustaining a narrative. And that lesson I learned with my first book, which was a nonfiction and 100% a journalist's book, which was Nine Parts of Desire. And I was trying to distill what I had learned over six years uh, living in the Middle East and basically learning to report the region through the advantage that I have had, which was the ability to speak to the women and get their experiences. Um, And, you know, it had been a mind-expanding, mind-blowing six years for me. And when I sat down to write that book, I had no idea how to sustain a narrative. More than 3,000 words was the longest thing I'd ever written at that point. And that was considered a long story for a newspaper. Um, So I had to learn how to do that. And so that was a, it took me six months and of wasted time before I could even begin to see the way. So that was one step. And then the next step was my second nonfiction book was Quirky and a lot more personal. And it was about the, it was called Foreign Correspondence and it's about the pen pals that I had when I was growing up in Sydney in the 60s and early 70s and writing to these kids all over the world. And uh, when I was 39 or 40, I found that my dad had kept their letters to me. And so I went and found them. And that book is kind of a a strange hybrid between a travel adventure, a memoir, and um, a reflection on 
what kind of a dude my dad was. So all of those three things were the strands that I had to learn how to weave together. And I think that doing that loosened me up and made it possible uh, when I made the leap into fiction because I, I had learned a couple of lessons earlier on. So when it comes to writing fiction, for you, clearly one of the big engines, the kind of recurring prompts, is history. Where did your love of history come from? When did that fascination kick in? And are the novel and history inextricably linked in your mind? Uh, no. <laughs> it's just because I'm a lazy bugger and if you find these wonderful stories from the past, you've, you've, got, the, you've got the superstructure. <laughs> And, you know, I, I I really don't think I know how to make it up from scratch. I love to find these stories that if you did make them up, they wouldn't be great books because they'd be too implausible. That a Muslim risked his life to save a Jewish book, that a, a Native American uh, born into his own language and culture in 16... 40 ends up graduating from Harvard with the sons of the colonial Puritan elite. If you made him up, everybody would say, oh, that's BS. But it happened. And so I'm always looking for a story where you know this fascinating thing happened, but you can't know everything about it. And that's where the the fictional part comes in. I wasn't really that interested in history, but then I fell in love with a historian, a, a, a guy who was absolutely animated by history. And I think it's a bit of symbiosis, you know, occurred um, living with a real historian. Is it the case that if your childhood and your upbringing was the kind of perfect gift to the person who wants to go on to become a writer, your marriage to Tony somehow became a continuation of that gift? Yeah, well, it certainly, you know, it was an amazing 35 years being married to Tony Horwitz, that's for sure. Was he a different kind of writer to you? How did that help with your own development as a writer? We started off being quite similar. You know, I met him in journalism school and we were passionate news reporters for more than a decade and a half. That was all we thought about doing. And then, you know, for me, it was having a child at the age of 40 and realizing I didn't want to be running off to dangerous situations on open-ended assignments and that I needed to try and find something else that would be gainfully employing. (laughs) And um, for Tony, it was just realizing that book writing made him happier than having to answer to a squad of editors at the New Yorker. He was desperately unhappy there because they would henpeck every sentence and and they also wanted him to tell them what the story would be before he'd reported it. And, and he had by that time written two or three books and, and he realised that he was a much happier man when he was working under his own direction. That makes a lot of sense. But it is funny to me that you describe your use of history as evidence of laziness in some way, kind of delving into artefacts and incidents. That's this whole additional layer of work and responsibility, not to mention pressure. Surely that's the opposite of lazy, grappling with the past. Oh, well, look, I don't know, but at least you've got, you've got an idea of what the plot is. And, and where it's going to go. Exactly. But it, 
Isn't there a burden of responsibility when you're doing that? I mean, I imagine like if you're going all the way back to the Bronze Age Israel or whatever, you don't feel like verisimilitude's essential. But but at the same time, the way people use history, the meaning they derive from it is so loaded and so charged. Like, is that something in your head as you're writing? Look, there's a huge burden and responsibility being a journalist. I used to have like a tick in my eye from thinking about have I been have I, you know, have I reported it well enough? Have I been fair to that, you know, international conspiracy of bad guy representative who's going to get completely shellacked on the front page of the Wall Street Journal tomorrow and I didn't sleep the night before those big stories were going to come out? So there's a huge responsibility there. And, yes, I like to follow the line of fact as far as it leads. I don't willy-nilly change things. And if I do change some small thing, I always come clean about it in the afterword of the book because I do feel a responsibility to that. But even though the historical kind of provocations are central to your novels, you'll often make the point of framing them with a contemporary thread or making a point of the relationship between retroactive storytelling and hindsight and how we kind of extract meaning from them in the present day. I mean, in in Horse, it's fundamentally important to the power of that book that the stuff you have to say about race and about slavery is seen through a lens of present-day racism in the US as well. Yeah, well, I realised that if I was going to be discussing racism in the 19th century and I was going to have a contemporary story, which I always wanted to because I was fascinated with the science around the horse's skeleton at the Smithsonian, I couldn't leave racism in the past as if it was something over and done with. That would have been irresponsible. Um, And I I have to say, when I realised that that was where I was going, my heart sank a little bit because you'd have to be living under a rock not to be aware of the discourse around appropriation and about who has the right to tell what story. And I wasn't thrilled about walking into that particular threshing machine but I didn't see any way to responsibly tell the story without doing that. When it comes to anxiety about stuff that you feel entitled to write about, you're yet to write a novel that is solely inspired by or set in a context of Australian history or Australian culture. And I'm curious about whether you have the anxiety of the expat who lives in two countries when it comes to writing about Australia, or whether you're just waiting to find the right story. I know I I started writing a novel based on the life of Jane Franklin, but something happened there in that I could not access the story that she was telling herself. And if you can't do that with a character, you really can't write them. But honestly, Australian history is so painful. The, The dispossession and the abuse of Indigenous Australians has to be addressed in it the despoilation of the landscape when, you know, we cut down the big scrub and I don't know, you know, it's just I think when it's your own, the idea of immersing myself in these painful histories, I'm a bit of a coward about it, honestly. No, I I completely get that. You know, it's such a different thing when you feel implicated personally in, in the history that you're writing about. Um, So if I can bring it back to the McKean quote that we kick things off with, I want to know when you're writing, how do you know 
when a sentence is done? Are you in a, a state of kind of constant revision, constant returning to the line, or does it flow out of you, you know it's done, and you move right on? Uh, all of the above. I, I am constantly revising, and I would be still revising horse if they had let me, you know. That, 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 that terrible day comes when they have to take it from your cold, dead hands, you know. And then you go out and you might be asked to read a passage and you can see like six ways you could make it better. It's excruciating. Uh, and then, you know, so I, I love what uh, a friend of mine who's a sculptor, her name is Sarah Z, and she makes these incredible, elaborate constructions. And they were profiling her for The New Yorker and they asked her about her process. And she said something that is so wonderful. She said... My process is mess, 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 art. And I love that because you can go to your desk and make a mess every day. You don't get to make art every day. You're lucky, you know. If you get one of those incredible days when the plane just takes off and soars, wonderful, and the sentences flow out and they're great, but you have to be really suspicious of those days, I think, because most of the time the plane's just clumping along on the runway and it's just not, not getting the lift. There's no question that Geraldine Brooks's latest novel, Horse, has lift and it soars. It's available at all good bookstores now. And if you're a fan of Brooks, and in particular her love of an elegant sentence, you should read her contribution to the Writers on Writers series about Tim Winton. It's a terrific essay and illuminates heaps about both writers. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, I wanted to let you know what I've been reading this week. Australian author Georgia Blaine was brilliant. And when she died in 2016, it definitely felt like we we're losing one of our great writers. So the posthumous release of some of her unpublished short stories is an absolute treat. It's called We All Lived in Bondi Then, and I am savouring every story in the collection. And American journalist Nathan Thrall has written an incredible work of non-fiction that I devoured over the summer. It's called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, and it's an account of a bus crash in the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful book that looks at the various human and societal factors that led to and flowed out of this one incident, and it's a powerful and far-reaching account of life in Israel and Palestine. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. That's it for this week's show. We haven't forgotten the promise from the end of last year to have a book club about Middlemarch. Watch this space. We're marshalling our resources to do it justice. It is an excellent book, and if you haven't caught up on it, make sure you do so. And if you enjoy the show, as ever, tell your friends. Rate and review us. It helps a lot. Next week on Read This, Bryony Doyle joins us to discuss her latest novel and why her late father would have loved the response it's received. 
Another thing that was a total surprise to me has been uh, like doing interviews and writers festivals and stuff. There's been quite a few women who've said, oh, I love the father character. I think he's so great. And I I thought, ah, you know, my dad would really love that, that he's kind of (laughs) impressing women from beyond the grave. I can tell from the book that your dad wouldn't mind being on the writers festival circuit with you. He'd love it. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.